welcome to the Girls Who Run the World podcast, where we're bringing you inspiring guests who are leaders in their industries. We'll be tackling topics from education and empowerment to diversity and inclusion. Together, let's learn from these incredible women. This podcast is brought to you by Our Gorongosa. We create specialty coffee with 100% of profits supporting people, wildlife, and the planet in Gorongosa National Park, Mozambique. Girls' education is one of our biggest priorities because we know girls have the power to change the world. Just like Beyonce said, who runs the world? Girls! Hello and welcome back to the Girls Who Run the World podcast. My name is Emily and I am your host today. I'm so excited to be bringing you this incredible episode featuring Dawn Averett. Dawn is the founder of the Well Project and the Women's Research Initiative for HIV and AIDS. She's also a board member of Grassroots Soccer. So in this episode, we talked to Dawn, who was just such an incredible really a force and someone that I feel very grateful to have met. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It gets quite emotional and raw in how Dawn shares her experience. And I want to give a kind of a trigger warning that we do discuss sexual trauma. So if this is something you are not prepared to listen to about, please, please skip this episode and join us for the next one. So Dawn has worked on HIV and women and women's health for almost 30 years. She started two nonprofit organizations. Those are the ones I mentioned before, which were the Well Project and the Women's Research Initiative for HIV AIDS. She's also a mother of three beautiful daughters and her passion for supporting women with HIV really started when she was diagnosed with the virus herself in 1988. So in this episode, you'll learn the impact of having HIV and there's both positive and of course negative aspects to it. So it was really interesting to hear her take on that. We talk about how she's overcome her diagnosis in a lot of ways and built such a full, incredible life with so much purpose and impact. We talk about the stigma that still lives on today around HIV and AIDS, and we also kind of compare it to what it was like in 1988, because at that time, we really didn't know what we do now about how the virus is transmitted, and it was a lot of fear, a lot of fear. We also talk about common misconceptions around HIV AIDS and why it's important to dispel them and the inspiring work Dawn contributes to through the Well Project, the Women's Research Initiative, and Grassroots Soccer. So this was such a beautiful and inspiring episode. We both teared up quite a few times throughout it. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation and it opens you up to the vulnerability of women and how that is a power as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Here's episode 13 featuring Dawn Averett. Welcome to the show, Dawn. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We're just going to jump right on into the opening segment. And I want to ask you, what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think I am most grateful for 
my family and, and friends. And that family for me is a term I use to describe a very large group of people. I think there are, there's my biologic family and there's my chosen families and, and so on. So family for me kind of encapsulates all of them. But I think I'm most grateful, especially during this COVID pandemic, um, for family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love your, I love your broader definition. I, I share that. My, I have friends that I've had since five years old that we are very close. And yeah, I think they are my chosen family. So love them. What inspires you daily? What inspires me daily? Gosh, life is life inspires me. Uh, you know, um, there's so much I want to see and do and experience in the world. Even, you know, I'm I'm 52 years old, and so you would think that I had enough, right? <laughs> but I haven't had enough, and so you know, there are lots of challenges that we all have to kind of endure on a daily basis. And um, I'm no exception to that, but, but kind of embracing life is, is, uh, is the thing that, that keeps me getting out of bed in the morning. What advice would you give to your younger self? And I always preface by saying, if she would listen, because I think (laughs) (laughs) think some of us, myself included, probably wouldn't have listened, but let's assume you would have. What advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> I, since I have a 17-year-old who I sometimes think of um, as, you know, would I listen, would I have listened to me if I, you know, so I've, I, I think I've thought about this a lot. And I think my advice to my younger self would really be about just taking chances living life and taking chances. I feel like when I was 17, 18, 19, when I was, you know, um, growing up, I was really intense and really, I felt like I had to have all the answers and I had to know what I was going to do with my life. And I had to know how I was going to get there. And, 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 and if I had mapped it out when I was 17 and 18, it would look nothing like the life I've had. And, and, um, and I'm really grateful for the life I've had. So I, I feel like, you know, if I could liberate my teen daughters from feeling like they had to have all the answers, um, that would be something I would do in a heartbeat. Mm. I love that. And I can absolutely relate to that. And I was laughing with a friend of mine recently, about the fact that we both had this idea that we would be married at 25 and have two kids by 30. Mm -hmm. And I didn't meet my partner until I was 27, maybe, um, and had my son at 31. So, and again, I would not change that. The experiences I had from 25 to 31, let's say, pre-kids, I mean, those are priceless those memories and those experiences. So I would absolutely not change it. But I do recall feeling pressure, kind of what you're describing, pressure to know what my plan was, what I was going to be when I grow up. And oh my goodness, the thing that's so fascinating to me though, too, with that is there's so many possibilities you don't even know about. If someone would have told me that I would get to spend part of my day talking to people and interviewing them, which I absolutely love, I wouldn't have even thought that was a possibility. Podcasts didn't exist really when I was 18, for example, right? So it's so interesting that 
we put this pressure on ourselves and there's so much possibility in the world and careers even and just things that we don't even aren't even existing yet. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that recognizing what the world of possibility is, and sometimes that's really hard. I mean, it depends on your circumstances in life. And, you know, the, the, the fact that most of our societies are pretty rigid about what the plan is. And I, um, I think we do a great disservice, especially to women and girls, you know, where we are kind of given a series of um, expectations that we should meet and conform to. And, um, and, you know, I think that's, that's really limiting. I mean, it can also be, it can also, you know, provide some safety, some structure, some, you know, parameters or some, you know, something that kind of keeps you feeling rooted. But, but I think it's okay to step over the line every once in a while and figure out, you know, what else is out there? Mm-hmm. And there is a lot out there. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> what is one mantra you like to live your life by? Let me think about that. I, I, a series of mantras that I actually say to myself kind of yeah. ran through my head. But I think the mantra that has served me best was not one that I said to myself initially, but as a small child, my father used to say, you can do anything. You can do anything you set your mind to. And, you know, as an adult, I've had people say to me, well, that really was kind of a disservice because, you know, you know, you can't fly to the moon without a spaceship, uh, you know, so you can do anything isn't really accurate. But I think the fact that I was liberated from that and, and I could just embrace doing anything, there were a lot of hard moments in my life when I needed that. I needed to wake up and just do it because somewhere in the back of my mind, I believed that my dad was onto something, you know, that I could do anything and that, that, and I didn't have to know what the thing was. I just needed to do the next thing. (laughs) And and that, you know, there are days when it's hard to get out of the bed, out of bed and, and keep going. And so doing the next thing is the best thing you can do. Um, So maybe that's the, maybe that's the ideal one. I I love both of those. Who or what has been your biggest teacher in your life so far? Well, there have been so many teachers there. I mean, there are, obviously I just used the example of my father and, and certainly my mother. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate in the, my parent lottery was good. And, uh, but I, I have to say probably the biggest teacher in my life was, you know, being diagnosed with HIV at 19 years old and, Finding myself in 1988 with an HIV diagnosis and believing, you know, what I, you know, what I had been told, which was, of course, this in those days was considered a death sentence. And so I, my biggest teacher was that moment when finding myself facing a life-threatening disease, I all of a sudden had a newfound peripheral vision, the ability to see things in a very different way than I did prior. And so, you know, I, I tell people that in that, in that moment, I had to learn how to live every day like I had six months and at the same time, live like I was going to live forever. So live in the moment, plan for the future. That's something that I believe absolutely every person should do. And it is 
maybe the single hardest thing there is. Um, so that's not a short answer to your question, but I would say that that in some ways a a, a life threatening diagnosis has been my biggest teacher. Mm-hmm. And I would guess that it continues to teach you things too and show you kind of back to what you had said before, what is possible and what you can create in your life, even given the circumstances, which, you know, I'm especially in 1988 would have not felt very ideal at all. I'm sure that was really scary. And I cannot even imagine at 19 what I would have felt like. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have taken me a long time at that age to pick myself back up. I think I probably would have stayed in a bit of a um, woe is me way of life for a while. But I don't know if you experienced that at all. Oh, sure. I mean, that's part of the human condition, right? Is that you have woe is me days. (laughs) Um, But you know, I don't, it's a little bit of a, um, a tricky spot to put you in because you actually don't know until it happens. I mean, there are mm-hmm. all kinds of things that I see happening in the world that are unimaginable. There are things, there are circumstances I can't imagine somebody could survive and they do. And so I, I can't expect for anyone to imagine that until you have to, to do it. But, you know, in some in some ways, the experience of living with HIV and being aware of my own mortality has been an extraordinary gift. Mm. I would not wish HIV on anyone. That is not what I'm saying. But the, the experience of that awakening and awareness is something that, you know, I feel like is a huge gift. Mm-hmm. I can absolutely see how there's that kind of push and pull. Like you said, obviously, we're not saying that that's the only way that you can feel that kind of weight, I would say, of your mortality. And I think it accelerates it when you have something like that, that you have to work through. And it's really, really incredible, though, to hear about your kind of mindset and how you've been able to create the amazing life you have because that's not that's not a given for anyone let alone when you go through something like that type of diagnosis so it's really incredible thank you welcome i'd love to go back a little bit now let's uh rewind a bit so pre-19 let's go (laughs) what was your earlier life like and how did you grow up where did you grow up give us a little bit to situate your early life So I grew up predominantly in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which um, is a suburb of Atlanta. But back in those days, it was way, you know, considered way out of town. There was, you know, horse pastures and and things like that. Today, it's really part of the city of Atlanta, but not not back in my day. (laughs) And I am the oldest child. I have two younger brothers. And I grew up with my mom and my dad and my two younger brothers, you know, in a, in basically a middle-class working neighborhood. My, my uh, parents got married right out of college. My dad was a Marine and my mom was a nurse and they spent, you know, their young adulthood kind of 
finding their way and having kids, you know, having my dad went to Vietnam and when he came home, I was born before he went. And then my brother was born while he was there. Um, And then my youngest brother came shortly after he got back. So um, I grew up in a tight knit family. There was not a lot of money in the early days and lots of, you know, camping were family trips (laughs) and um, family adventures. And, you know, I count myself as extraordinarily fortunate. Um, We had to, you know, we grew up doing things like swim team and camping adventures with my folks when my dad wasn't doing Marine reserves. And, and uh, you know, I think that as childhoods go, I, I was really close to my brothers and my, and my parents and still am. And so I think that that's pretty lucky. Definitely. So it sounds like you have a nice family structure that you were able to kind of have some safety in and probably continue to have that feeling, which is awesome. I have that too. So I'm, I'm very fortunate as well in that, in that department. I love how you said the parent lottery because yeah, yeah, I mean, when you're born, you just get born to where you're born. That's that. (laughs) I'd love to now chat a little bit about your journey into your career. So how did you get started and kind of what led you into activism and nonprofits? What got you into that world? That is a great question. One of the, one of the things that happened for me was I was diagnosed when, while I was in college. I was diagnosed with HIV at 19. And, you know, life expectancy in, at that point was six months. Um, <gasps> so I had to grapple with this decision about whether or not I would go back and finish college. And it's kind of crazy now when you look back at where we were then compared to where we are now. So growing up, I always said I was going to be an obstetrician gynecologist, an OBGYN. I wanted to deliver babies. I announced that when I was eight. Um, And um, it was either that or I wanted to be a foreign diplomat. And what's kind of funny about where I've ended up is, uh, yeah, there's a nice convergence <laughs> yeah. um, of some of those kinds of things, of, of, of certainly of passions that I've had my, my whole life. But I did decide to go back to college. I decided it was like serving, you know, it was like purgatory, you know, like if I, it wouldn't count as time lived if I just went ahead and finished. So I went back to college and I finished and I got my college degree and then I went to work in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill for a very high-profile U.S. senator, but my HIV status was a secret. It was a very big secret. My doctor in 1988 had never diagnosed another woman with HIV, and in the moment when he diagnosed me, he said, don't read anything. It's too confusing, and don't tell anyone because this could really mess up your family's life. And, you know, that sounds so harsh and horrible now, but I've come to a really, I don't know, a kind of a a sensitive softness about that moment because I think he was saying what he knew at the time and he wasn't wrong. Um, You know, we were advised not to put anything about HIV on any of our insurance because my family might lose their insurance. My parents could lose their job. My brothers could be kicked out of school. I mean, there was all of this stuff that 
you know, it wasn't just my diagnosis. It was now implicating my whole family and our well-being. So, so those were, those were hard and, and, you know, kind of dark days. Um, so I kind of tucked it away and HIV became this burden that I carried. My immediate family knew, but my extended family did not. No one else knew. Wow. Very stigmatized. And I went to work in Washington, D.C. for this senator. And, and so I was the receiving end of all kinds of advocacy groups who were fighting at the time with the, uh, with the senator that I was working for about allowing gays to stay in the military. It, were, it was... It, these were crazy days. And, wow. It's, but, uh, <laughs> it's just shocking. Like, if you guys, if you could see my face right now, everyone, my jaw is dropping because 1988's not that long ago. It's, it's just wild. And I totally understand. I can, I can see where you're coming from with, with that uh, feeling of kind of softness towards the doctor. Cause from, from the outside, it does sound like that was, you know, he was doing the best he could with what he had at the time. And sound, it sounds like he was really trying to protect you in a way because he didn't want your life to be any more difficult, right? It's already, you're dealing with this disease. And then if you have to then deal with the implications of the pressure, I think if you were to have, say, your, I don't know, your mom loses her job or something. And because of that, it would be really hard for you. And I would have been really awful. And so I can, I can understand, I would say where it's coming from, but some of these things sound so wild to me because of course now HIV is so different and I, I, we will get into that, but I'd love to finish, finish your story here. Well, the story, you know, uh, is long, but the shorter version of it is I, I did finish college and I went to work in Washington DC and I had the opportunity to be, you know, the, the kind of buffer <laughs> at the senator's office when AIDS organizations like ACT UP, Queer Nation and others came to the office with fake vials of blood and shook them in my face and said, you know, you're a bigot, you hate people with AIDS. And I had to say, no, 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 I'm not afraid of you. But I couldn't tell them that I had HIV because this was still this big secret. And, but that was a real awakening for me and an opportunity to realize um, that there were um, these really powerful community-based advocacy efforts out there that were working, you know, really, really hard <laughs> to, to help decision makers and policy makers and doctors and the media understand more about um, even the very little we knew about HIV at the time. And so after a couple of years in Washington, I decided to apply for a job as a treatment resource specialist for an organization that became the AIDS Survival Project in Atlanta, Georgia. And I knew nothing about HIV. I tell people I, I knew I had it. I knew, you know, more T-cells were better than less T-cells and things like that. But um, I convinced these guys to give me this job and that was kind of the birth of becoming an AIDS activist. And it was about, it was about both learning how, what was available for me, mm -hmm. but what I found easier was figuring out how 
to help others. And I think that that's true for a lot of women. It's, it's you know, we would rather advocate for our house plants sometimes than, than ourselves. And, and that was certainly part of how I came into this. Like I, I started realizing that there were no women visible and vocal and out there. And um, so after about seven years, I got, you know, I got this job and I, and I made the decision to come out in the Atlanta Journal Constitution in this huge spread with this big picture um, as being a woman living with HIV. And it was, it was my liberation. Mm -hmm. And it was my family's liberation because we didn't have to carry it anymore. So uh, that was the beginning. In, in 1992 and uh, 1993, I took my first job um, as a treatment activist and advocate at the AIDS Survival Project. And the rest is a, a, a long list of history, <laughs> founding two nonprofit organizations for women with HIV over the last 20, 30 years, 25, 30 years, and, um, and having the privilege of being the voice for you know, women and girls who couldn't mm-hmm. for safety reasons, for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, speak out. absolutely. Wow. That is an incredible story. Thank you for sharing, first of all. And there's so much in what you said, but it really stuck with me that you kept a secret, a huge secret for how many years was that? Quite a seven. few. Pardon? About seven. Yeah. Seven years. And the pressure of secrets for those listening, if you, most people have, do have some sort of secret. I think there's some that are bigger than others and some that are smaller, but I can relate because I kept secret that I was a sexual abuse survivor for so long and it really weighs on you. It's the pressure of just not being able to set that free is so heavy. So I can, I can empathize with that. That's an even, you know, I think at that time having an HIV diagnosis, there's all a lot more stigma attached. Whereas now I feel like there's still some stigma attached to something like sexual abuse, but it's not what it was, I think. And so I think it's been, but it's been great to see some of that shift. And I'm sure you've seen a little of that shift and I, in terms of an HIV diagnosis. And I would love if you could tell us a bit about what you've seen shift over your activism because we came from 19, 1988, like you said, it was basically a death sentence. It was something that was so stigmatized because we didn't know how it was transmitted. I think there was this fear. Like people didn't even want to be around people, I think. Right. So- yeah, I'd love for you to walk us through kind of that <laughs> and then how, how you've seen it kind of evolve and what it's, what it's like now. Well, first of all, I think it's a really big deal that you just acknowledge your experience. So I just want to make sure that, that you know and that all, also anyone listening knows that that, that is an incredibly um, hard it's a hard path. I, it's likely that I was infected via rape. So I'm also um, a sexual violence survivor. And I, and I think that the, unfortunately, you know, that's true for more women than not. And men too, but, you know, in this case, I'll, I'll speak to the experience of, of women. So I think it's really important. And it's, it's important that we speak that truth um, because, because it's really isolating if 
if you feel like you're the only one and it's impossible not to feel like you're the only one. I mean, there's, and the, and this, the, you know, this kind of goes back to your question around stigma and how things have evolved because, you know, it's 2021 and, and people are more open and there is a, a kind of a, more acceptance around, um, you know, sharing honestly uh, about our past, our history, the things that have happened to us, the things we've endured. That said, it's still stigmatizing. Um, And in HIV, although, you know, society at large might say, HIV is one of those things. It's a chronic manageable disease. There are treatments. People can live with this. It's okay. It doesn't feel like that to somebody who's diagnosed today. And, you know, the stigma when I was diagnosed was different. It was a different type of stigma, I think. But there's a very real stigma that still lives and breathes today. And and so for somebody who's diagnosed today, I describe it as, you know, kind of falling down an abandoned well shaft or something, you know, where nobody else knows that you're down in this hole where you feel alone and isolated and scared and others are like, well, it's okay because HIV is something lots of people are dealing with. So it's a, it's tricky because that's, that stigma is very individual and it's very personal and it's real. So uh, I just wanted to throw that, that out there because I think for anybody who's listening, who's ever, who, who themselves personally has had an experience either of, enduring um, sexual violence or who has HIV or anything like HIV. <laughs> I don't want to dismiss or discount that, that, that the reality of stigma that exists. Um, and one of the, the important things that you're talking about, the thing that you brought up by saying, look, you know, I couldn't have talked about this before, but now I can, mm-hmm. is, is this, this secrecy causes or subjects us to a sort of vulnerability that I don't think many people realize or understand. For a long time, I kept HIV a, a secret because I didn't want, I felt, I thought if I put it out there, people might attack me, people might say horrible things about me. And that felt like I was creating vulnerability. But what I discovered when I was able to disclose, and and I'm not saying that everybody can or should, mm-hmm. it's a very personal decision. But when I was able to finally disclose and go public, I wasn't vulnerable anymore. People couldn't hurt me with it because it wasn't my it wasn't the secret. People couldn't hurt me with it. Sometimes my, I, and I'm not saying that I couldn't still be hurt, but the reality is that that secret that does eat eat at you, mm-hmm. it it. It was it was disabled and it took the power away from it and gave me the power yes. because now I controlled how that information, you know, was handed out and who was told and how they were how it was explained and and um, and that was both liberating and extraordinarily empowering and I think it's why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love all of what you said there and I think it's interesting because it really is it's actually public relations 101 that you want to get out in front of the story, right? So you want to be the person who gets to say, you want to say how you feel about it. You want to say what your experience has been as opposed to Linda gossiping about it to, you know, Karen, because they found out some backdoor way, 
right? So I totally get that. And I think I just want to say again too that letting go of a secret feels really good. And it's not, it's not like you said, it's not for everyone. I'm not saying you have to. I think these things do kind of come in their time when you feel ready, when your family feels ready, whatever the case may be. So it's not say, to say that that's the only way you can go about it, but it, there is something so liberating and empowering because nobody can hold that over your head. You're talking about it, right? So it's, it's you, it's your story. And I think it's so powerful that you have been able to share that. And I think too with HIV, I do want to get into a little bit about misconceptions because I think there are so many. And I think one of them is that no women have it or not as many women. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, actually that's one of my, one of my favorites. This isn't a problem for women. And, and, you know, globally there are more women infected with HIV than men. Wow. 52% of the global population of people living with HIV are women. So this is a, this is a women's health problem. And, you know, I think people have heard all kinds of, you know, slogans and whatever, but the reality is the virus doesn't discriminate. And I think perhaps coronavirus is helping people kind of wrap their heads around that in a whole different way. But but, you know, it is what we learned from HIV, uh, that, that it doesn't discriminate. And women are really susceptible. It's much easier for a man to transmit to a woman right. than the other way around. And, you know, it's, I think our fear for so many years has fueled a, an unhealthy and unsafe denial. Mm. Nobody wants to believe they're at risk. And in our efforts in the early days to get people to create awareness around HIV, I think we created the stigma. We said certain kinds of people are really susceptible to HIV. And we were really effective with that messaging. And that was to our great, great detriment. You know, so part of the reason that I speak publicly and I'm out there is because when people see me, I don't look like the person they think should have HIV because of who, what the construct in their head might be. So I, you know, I think it's really important for us to dispel the myth that this is not a women's problem or a women's health issue. It totally is. And, you know, the reality is the ways you protect yourself from HIV and prevent HIV also protect you from sexually transmitted diseases, many of which that are are much easier to transmit than HIV, you know, and they help if you're using barrier protection, they prevent potentially unwanted pregnancy. So I think that, that we can encapsulate that power that women have to protect themselves. And, and, you know, part of what I do in the world is, is uh, work on research and try to, develop and and support the design of novel treatments and prevention methods and hopefully women controlled prevention methods so you know there's there's a lot that we can do now that never seemed possible even 15 or 20 years ago so i definitely I, I just wanted to swing back around and say you know this is this is that's the big the big myth is that women um uh, this is not a, a problem for women and it's not a problem for housewives. <laughs> yeah. You know, like for some reason, 
there's this idea that, that, you know, if you're married, you're safe. And the reality is in a lot, a lot of places in this world, it's actually one of the risk factors. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but, um, but I also want to dispel the myth that this is a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with good reason, 30 years ago, that was the experience. Increasingly, we have both behavioral and biomedical tools for prevention. So what that means is, in addition to condoms and safer sex, there are pre-exposure prophylaxis or medication that people can take to prevent HIV transmission. You know, there are, so we have a lot of tools in our toolkit. And, And in the treatment toolkit, it's, you know, more than we could have imagined. I mean, there are more than 35 approved in the U.S. There are more than 35 approved um, therapies. Many of those are combination medications, but there are choices and there are options and there are things that we can do to keep people healthy and well. The other uh, myth is that people with HIV always transmit HIV. And there, we know very clearly now that somebody who is on effective treatment, so they don't have any measurable HIV virus in their blood, don't transmit HIV. Mm. And that's both, you know, uh, sexual, that's about sexual transmission. But we also know that women who are on effective treatment have a less than 1% chance of transmitting HIV to their infants Mm. if they're able to access treatment and care. So, you know, as an HIV positive woman, one of the greatest and most devastating parts of my diagnosis at 19 was that I was told I would never have children. And, you know, I am delighted to tell you that I'm the mother of three amazing daughters now. And the first two I gave birth to, and they are both HIV negative. And that's possible because of the extraordinary research um, that we have done over the years. But, but there are There are so many important and hopeful messages around HIV that knowing your status is such an incredibly important thing to do because there are ways to protect yourself to prevent it and there are things you can do to treat it if you have HIV and and ways to stay well. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Super, super important information. And speaking of thriving. (laughs) You have so much going on. I would like to just talk a little bit about the Well Project and what that is all about. So the Well Project is the second nonprofit organization that I founded. I founded my first one in the early 90s um, because there was nothing out there focusing on treatment information and treatment advocacy for women with HIV and AIDS. But the Well Project is this extraordinary organization that is so far beyond me. You know, it, it was it was this this kind of baby I gave birth to as well. And the idea behind the Well Project was that there needed to be a place where women and the people you know that that loved them and surrounded them, and also the people who provided care, so doctors and physicians and researchers, could go and find easy-to-access, digestible, and reliable information around HIV um, and living with HIV. And, you know, the mission of the Well Project is, you know, to, to basically change the course of the HIV-AIDS 
pandemic through a comprehensive focus on women. Um, that does not mean we don't serve men. There are men that get their information there because of the way it's served, but it's really focused on women and women's needs. And um, there are three components. One is this web portal that serves someone from every country in the world every month without fail for more than a decade now. So wow. um, I can't take credit for that. Um, it's you know the extraordinary team um, that does that day in and day out. The other piece is uh, something called A Girl Like Me, which is a blog where positive women share their experiences. Mm. And that's women from all over the world, again, who share stories and experiences with one another, extraordinarily powerful. And then the third piece is, is a piece of, you know, kind of my passion as well, which is the Women's Research Initiative on HIV AIDS, which is a women in HIV think tank, which brings together all kinds of great minds to think about how we drive research and policy forward that supports women. Wow. So amazing. I love all of that. And the last thing I wanted to talk about was your a board member on grassroots soccer as well. So I'd love to hear how that came about. So how did you become a member there and what is some of the work you're doing there? Well, uh, first of all, I am, uh, when you say, how did you get to be a board member? I feel like, um, I, I was lucky and, uh, Grassroots Soccer is an extraordinary organization. And, you know, it's funny because as somebody who's worked in HIV for almost 30 years now, the first time I heard of Grassroots Soccer, I was like, what does that have to do with HIV? <laughs> and, you know, and as I dug in and as I started to learn more, I was like, this is absolutely brilliant. It's basically taking, you know, the world's most beloved game and using it as a tool and a rubric for, for teaching young people, so boys and girls, about HIV and AIDS prevention, about adolescent health-related issues, their mental health, sexual reproductive health, gender-based violence, and tools for navigating all of those things that, that basically kids today have to deal with and know something about. And also kind of cultivating leaders, both in their coaches, but as well as also, you know, in addition to their, their, um, the participants, the, the, the kids that, that are a part. So I have a daughter, well, two daughters who play soccer. And, and um, so we have a family that loves soccer, even though, you know, the U.S. is a little slower sometimes to catch up <laughs> with the rest of the world <laughs> in this particular issue. But Grassroots Soccer is an extraordinary organization that's impacting the lives of millions of um, adolescent boys and girls. And so, you know, when they invited me to be part of that, I, I was really honored. And, you know, I, I look at you know, the kids are our future. And if we aren't giving young people the tools they need, if we're not answering their questions and giving them ways to see a path forward, then what's our, where's our hope come from? <laughs> so Grassroots Soccer is an extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary program. And, and I, I hope if people don't know about it, they check it out. Yes, absolutely. And we are partnered with them as well. Um, at Gorongosa National Park, which is so exciting for everyone. And yeah, it's an incredible organization. And I kind of agree with you. At first, you might think, what does is, what is soccer have to do with HIV? <laughs> but 
my partner's Brazilian, so you know, soccer is the world, and I grew up playing competitive soccer, so in Canada, but uh, it is something that you know, Mario, my partner, says it's the most democratic sport that we have because really, you don't even need to have shoes to play with it. You, you, I mean, it's helpful to have a ball, but you see people using so many different things as the quote unquote ball. And so really anyone can get involved. So I just think it's brilliant because it is already so popular. It's a hugely democratic sport that anyone can get involved with for little to no money. So I just, I love what grassroots soccer is doing. It's so incredible. And yes, definitely check it out if you haven't heard of them yet. Uh, and I want to first, before we get to the rapid fire round, acknowledge you, Don, for the incredible advocacy work you're doing and for having the bravery, frankly, to step up into a position where you are breaking down barriers of what it looks like to be someone who is thriving with HIV. So I really appreciate all the work you're doing. I feel very privileged. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, what's a book that's changed your life? Oh, there are, there are a number of them. Let's see. This is supposed to be rapid fire, so I need to be <laughs> rapid fire. Actually, I have to say, recently I read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and I thought that that was pretty astounding and a, a good game changer and a real opportunity to be, to, to be real, to be real with myself and to be real with others. So I would say Untamed is recently a really extraordinary Yes. Read. Great book. Highly recommend. Favorite place you've traveled? Favorite place I have traveled. I have been, I have been fortunate to travel a lot of places, but it would be a tie for me between my very first trip to the African continent, to South Africa mm. and Nepal. Wow. I haven't been to either of those places, but would love to. <laughs> like you said at the beginning, there's just so much to see. It's exciting. That's right. <laughs> and speaking of exciting, what are you most excited for this year? Boy, I'm really excited to be moving towards hopefully uh, a, a new normal. You know, I, I know that we're, not, we're never going back, but I would really like to, I, I hope we take this really, really difficult moment in time, this pandemic, to really take some inventory and figure out how we as societies do a better job protecting our people and developing community and standing up for one another. I love that. What's a lesson you've learned recently? A lesson I have learned recently. God, I feel like I learn a lesson every <laughs> single day, usually at the hands of my five-year-old. Um, <laughs> yeah, the lessons come in all different forms, but you know, I have to say, and I know I'm going, I keep going back to COVID, but I, I think it's kind of, you know, consumed us <laughs> to a certain extent, but a lesson that has really, you know, kind of come from this experience is, it's just how small the world really is. And, and, you know, I feel like I knew that and, and I keep relearning it and it, and it keeps getting more and more sharp. Um, and I'm, you know, like I, I, it seems silly to say that that's, that's something I learned recently, except for that it just feels more true, um, Mm -hmm. all the time. So, and then I would say my most kind of my fun, um, lesson would be that, 
as huge fans of the U.S. women's national soccer team, to you Canadians. <laughs> Thank <maybe>. you. <laughs> Congratulations on the gold. But uh, I, I, I think that that is an extraordinary group of women um, that continue to show up in so many ways beyond the soccer pitch um, that uh, they're like grassroots soccer. I think they're, they, they are taking this beloved sport and turning it into a real platform Mm -hmm. for impacting the lives of women and girls. And, uh, you know, and so I have to do a shout out for them. Yes. And we are here for that. It's incredible. (laughs) Last one here, name a woman who inspires you. I can, I, you know, I am terrible at this because I have, I have a laundry list. I have a lot, right? Amazing women. And I have been so fortunate to meet just incredible women. So probably, I guess I should say my mother. Oh, <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. I don't know why. I'm a little bit psychic, I think. It was, <laughs> it was between Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, and my mother. And so I decided to <laughs> go mom. Mary. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, as a mom and, um, and as a woman, I, you know, I... I can now look at my mother's life and experiences and everything else and really realize um, what an extraordinary Mm. role model she has been. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It makes me tear up a little bit because I feel the same about my mom. And I think as mothers, I I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think every day I, I, I grow to respect and love her more (laughs) than, you know, the new challenges that motherhood brings and just seeing all that she was able to do with her life and how she showed up for us. It's just, it's very touching to me. And I think it, it just grows, (laughs) grows and grows. So it's beautiful. I know that's, uh, my, my, my little piece of advice to everyone is call your mother. Um, I mean, you know, (laughs) I realized that, um, after I had my first child and I was pregnant, pregnant with my second one, I, I, had this moment where I looked down at this, you know, lanky being that was in my arms and and relying on me. And, and I had this memory of my mom who is smaller than I am, you know, I'm fairly tall. So she's, and, and I, I remember, you know, I was sitting there at that moment thinking about a few years before when I was upset about something and she was like, here, do you want to sit on my lap? And I was like, don't be ridiculous. I'll crush you. And, and I I literally called her at that moment and I said, whenever you want, I'll sit on your lap because all I could, all I could do was look at this baby and think, I hope this kid will always come and sit on my lap. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dawn. This has been incredible. I've absolutely loved getting to know you. This kind of hour flew by. So I want to make sure everyone goes and follows and connects with you. So where are the best places to find all the organizations you're involved with? Well, um, I obviously we've talked about grassrootsoccer.org. So www.grassrootsoccer.org. And then, um, and they're on Instagram at grassrootsoccer. And then um, obviously the Well Project, which is um, an organization near and dear to my heart, um, which is thewellproject.org. Um, and, and, you know, they're also on, you know, Instagram and Facebook and probably platforms I'm not even aware of. <laughs> Yeah. I'm old enough now that <laughs> all the new ones like TikTok, maybe who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I would say those are those are the two places um, certainly to start. Incredible. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. I've enjoyed this time with you, Emily. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Girls Who Run the World podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend who would love it. Leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. To learn more about Our Gorongosa, head over to OurGorongosa.com and find us on social at OurGorongosa.com. 